0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast, I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is the second part of a two-part series with Professor Robert Talese. In the first part we talked about the theory of disagreement, what are we actually doing when we disagree politically, and in this part we talk about the practice of disagreement in contemporary American politics and in recent American history. Before I get to that, though, an announcement. This is the 100th episode of the podcast. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Well, I mean, maybe you don't care that much, but it's kind of a milestone to me, and I guess how much does it really mean, right? It's just a big round number. We're in a base 10 counting system, and it's got two noughts on it, but it, it feels kind of cool. You know, I started this, what, about two years ago now has to be a little over i guess if it's 100 and we've been doing one a week but i really never expected it to to catch on like like it has i just did it for fun it just seemed like something that was interesting to do and i remember a couple of episodes in once when, when we had for the first time an episode got 100 downloads that felt like such a big deal to me that a hundred people had listened to my work, and it it still does. Um, And now we're at a point where if I put a new episode up, it will pretty reliably get at least a thousand downloads in the first 12 to 24 hours that I put it up, and it'll build more over time. So that's just, like, amazing. So... I figured I'd take just a few minutes to just do two things. One is to just do a big thank you to everyone who's been involved with this, and then the other is to sort of give you my thoughts on where the podcast's going in the future. So if you're not super interested in that, maybe skip ahead a few minutes if you're just here for the interview, but stay with me actually. Um, firstly, um, You know, no project or very few projects are something someone did truly alone. No man is an island and all that. But this has truly been a collaborative effort. Firstly, I've just had so many amazing guests come on and volunteer their time. I've got so much great feedback from uh, other academics, from just interested listeners and so on. I've had people voluntarily sponsor the podcast so that it's not something i'm losing money on and in fact now we're getting to the point where if it continues to grow i can i don't even know like make it an income stream um like actually start devoting more and more of my life to it i don't think i want to do this full time but you know maybe at some point i can sort of balance it out a bit differently i on top of that, want to thank everyone who's shared this podcast or recommended it to friends. Like, almost all of our growth has been organic that way. And finally, just thank you for listening. Like, I really appreciate that. It genuinely means a lot. And if you're hearing this, you know, this is directed at you. Um, it really means a lot. Like, I had a few sort of public-facing projects before this. I blogged for a bit. I've written some papers for academic journals and so on. And with all of them, I sort of felt like I was trying to meet something that the audience wanted. I was trying to, like, create the product that I thought would work and it didn't, by and large. Whereas with this, I just thought I'm doing this for me. I'm creating the podcast. I would want to listen to and so the fact that when I you know stopped trying to sort of chase what I thought people want and just sort of produce the podcast that I would want to to have um, that proving to be the most successful thing I've done is just incredibly validating it makes me think you know maybe I'm not a complete idiot and that like I actually should trust myself a bit with, like, what I think is valuable and worth asking people to pay attention to. So, not to belabor this, but I am genuinely um, grateful and often quite humbled um, by how many of you have taken the time to... um, Listen to this, and it's been incredible, right? I know some people, are, you know, probably this might be your first episode, some people you've s- s- listened to a few, and some people have been with us almost from the beginning, which is crazy, because if you think about it, the episodes are an hour minimum, and many of them go over that, um, so we're probably looking at what, what would you say, maybe 130 hours of content that we've created on this thing, um, so it's like a proper body of work now. And not only have we explored lots of different ideas and perspectives and, you know, theories about the world, there sort of has been a cumulative body of work. And this is, this is something I didn't intend to do. But I'd say, over the course of this project, I've used the conversations I've had primarily to sort of just have the guests on and introduce you all to their ideas, but also as a sounding board for me to develop ideas of my own that I've then presented in some of these solo episodes and solo series. And, you know, I've put them out there. I've got emails and feedback from listeners. I've taken that in. I've thought about it. I've tried out various ideas and so on on, um, on guests, and I've sort of developed two distinct and incompatible sort of moral and political theories of the world. And by the way, this is just an incredibly different and distinctive way of doing political theory. I'm incredibly grateful for having been able to to do it and saying it's different doesn't mean it's better than more traditional means it just means that it's different you know it almost certainly has weaknesses and blind spots that other you know ways of approaching the field um don't but perhaps you know by the same token it can it can generate different insights so, so sort of the two positions i've been evolving i'd say there's a there's a major one and a minor one The major one is a sort of contemporary, comprehensive liberalism, grounded ultimately in an essential contestability theory of language, building from a sort of loose moral consequentialism to get to a sort of um, John Stuart Mill liberal view of the world, which is self-consciously more combative and self-consciously more aggressive in its liberalism. It applies it to a broader range of things, and it's more willing to focus on conflict, as we'll discuss in this episode, than perhaps some more consensus-driven contemporary liberal theory. That's sort of one intellectual project, and that was always sort of my underlying intuitions, but through all of these conversations and solo episodes and so on, I think I've been able to sort of flesh that out into something that feels coherent to me, and that I can sort of argue with people on the spot with it. I sort of, like, uncomfortable in what I think on that one. The other one is very different again, and that's this neo-Machiavellian worldview, which is sort of like a neo-Republican worldview, but much more heavily grounds itself in. Not... A sort of liberal individualism, not a a sort of self-interested, whatever, view of human nature, but sort of difficult, painful emotions like shame, and dark emotions like our desire to dominate others. And I kind of developed that as just, like, an intellectual toy, but a lot of people have sort of, you know, listened to my bloody two-hour episode on humiliation and goes, yo, that just, like... Once I started looking at the world through that pair of glasses, just so much stuff started making sense, and other people have had their criticisms, of course, but it sort of convinced me that there was there was something there, which brings me on to the last bit I wanted to say here, which is what's coming up next on the podcast. So episode one hundred that seems like a good point to go into season four four seasons, right. I mean, I say that as if it means something. When I do the cut-off points on, on, on the, the the seasons for this show, is entirely arbitrary. It's just, like, little cut-off points that make sense in my head, and it doesn't really mean anything. But whatever. Season four. Huzzah! We're, we're, we're on to that. And I think what I'm getting into the habit of doing is starting a new season um, with, like, one of my more extended solo series. So I finally got to the point where I've got it all written down. I've got all my sort of quotes and talking points and whatever mapped out because I've been hinting at a new one coming for a while and I'm going to start it next week. Um, And I finally got my title. I'm going to call it Ideologies of the Ancients. And it came from a project where I was looking at the particular ideologies that elites have held throughout history and I realised I had way too much, it was just too, I was trying to get too much in. So I cut it off and I looked specifically at what of elites in the ancient world, what values or categories or ideas or structures have they appealed to to justify their power? And so I look primarily at first hand sources, such as uh, uh, ones that are available starting with the Assyrian Empire which if you haven't encountered this bit of history I'm going to make you love it because you know Greeks and Romans we do a lot of but I'm going to start with the Assyrian Empire and then work through to the early Roman Republic and what I'm going to do which I haven't seen done before because there's there's a lot of content on the ancient world. There's a lot of podcasts that are essentially um, narrative histories of different parts of the, the, you know, Romans, Greeks, whatever, right? And some of those are great, and I've listened to a lot of them in preparation for this. But I don't want to just add one more thing that's been done before, and frankly would probably have been done better than I'm going to do it. What I'm doing is I'm going to take modern tools of ideological analysis, and look at the ancient sources, and say, okay, here we have a royal proclamation from Ashurbanipal, king of kings, emperor of Assyria. Let's look at what he's saying through a Marxist interpretive framework. What does it look like then? Let's look at it through a modern essential contestability hermeneutic framework. What does it look like then? Let's take and, and, and there's going to be a bunch of them that I bring in. And so as I go through my history, I'm going to be bringing in new frameworks and trying to argue that a lot of them are really plausible in their own right, and they sort of feel right once you wrap your head around it, but can com- produce completely different pictures of what's going on here and and how human societies are organized and how they sustain themselves and how they change over time um and this is intended to be if i've already turned you off what i'm trying to sell you on is for people who are kind of not that into ancient history if like you know i get it it's cool it's important whatever but like you are not particularly interested in learning about, you know, the, the the battle plan of Alexander the Great or whatever. That's just not your shtick. This is for you. I want to try and do ancient history as it hasn't been done, or I, I haven't seen it done before, and show you just how compelling and interesting it is, and how weird it is, and how unsettling it is, and how radically unknowable it is. And at the end of all that, I'm going to go back to us, and try and argue that all of this conversation I've been having about, like, what would a Marxist say about Assyria? You know, what would a a strong idealist say about ancient Macedonia? I'm going to show you how all of these conversations are just conversations about the world we live in today, that it's not actually about history, and then to come to some sort of, from the past, looking at the present, some sort of view of these two worldviews, shall we say, frameworks, the sort of liberal and the neo-Machiavellian that I've been developing through these you know, 130 hours of, of of content that I've created on this podcast, and show how someone like Machiavelli, how his worldview flowed out of a particular analysis of the ancient world, but also show how other worldviews might look, looking at them from the past forward. So it's a hugely ambitious project. It's probably going to be a four or five parter, i've got the first two very clearly worked out and then there's either going to be two or three more probably punctuated by an, an interview or two because these are big projects it's like writing a book um but yes that's what's coming this will be the last episode of season three and i'm going to start season four with ideologies of the ancients part one so yeah 100 episodes I feel, I feel pretty good about that. Um, I'm very grateful to all of the hundreds of people who've contributed to this in some way, who've made it happen. And yeah, that's a little preview of what I've been working on and what's coming up next. So tune in next week to catch that. And specifically, I've got an ask for you. Tune in next week if you're not a super-ancient world person. That's not really your shtick, because I'm trying to create something that will sell you on it. Anyway, that was quite a long introduction, so let's get straight to this week's episode. I introduced Professor Talise at the beginning there, so I won't do that again, and I think this episode more or less stands up by itself, but if you do want the context, you know, please do go back and check out the first part. They definitely uh, make sense together. But, you know, I'm I'm not telling you how to live your life if you don't care for context, or, you know, you're happy to just jump in, then terrific. Let's get started. So, without any further preamble, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you, for the second time, Professor Robert Talese.
1: say this, because, you know, the empirical stuff here, I think, is is helpful in the following sense. Um, We might say that, look, our social lives have been infected with partisan politics ever since the beginning of the republic. We could say that. And in fact, I don't think I would, you know, really want to deny that. What has happened, though, particularly in the past 25 years, is that More and more of what we do together is understood often very explicitly as an expression of our partisan identity. That is, we've got interesting empirical results that show that, especially over the past 20, 25 years. The way we understand ourselves in partisan terms, as part of our self conception has become more central to our overall social identity over the past 25 years. And so, we are, as a democratic populace, more likely to see in our mundane behaviors, like drinking Starbucks... (laughs) a signal of, an expression of, an assertion of our partisan identity so that more and more of the products that we buy, the places that we um, inhabit, how we spend our weekends, what occupations that we perform, our workplaces, our schools, our communities, our neighborhoods, the streets on which we live over the past 25 years have not only become more politically homogeneous, such that it is even in cities now, even in major metropolises, it is less likely now than it was 25 years ago that your neighbors voted differently from you in the United States. Now, when you're talking about you know New York City and l a and whatever it's you know it's 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 still pretty likely that you can find somebody in your apartment building who voted differently from you. It's just less likely than it was i I ago. can
0: I live on Staten Island I can throw a rock and, and hit one but as an aside yeah,
1: yeah yeah but no, it's a comparative judgment right it would have you would have had to throw the rock less far twenty five years ago right okay so That's one sort of feature of this, is that the spaces are more politically homogeneous, yet, again, more and more of what we do is interpreted as an act of citizenship, an act on behalf behalf of our partisan allegiances. Now, what that means is that, you know, our conception of those citizens who don't agree with us politically is increasingly coming by way of the reports of the people who do agree with us politically. Um, So we are along the same lines now harboring um, increasingly negative attitudes and assessments of our political opponents. Now let me spell that out once more. Partisan hostility is not new. What has emerged relatively recently, again, past two decades, is that my partisan hostility for the people I perceive to be my political opponents is not direct at the party leaders, the candidates of the other side. It used to be, right? Not liking Republicans used to be a attitude that was targeted at Ronald Reagan, right? Now partisan hostility is increasingly targeted at the rank and file people who are perceived to be affiliates. So, I don't just hate the Republican Party. I just don't, I don't just hate Mitch McConnell now, right? I hate the guy in the building next the the economics building is over I'm pointing in the direction there. I know there's a guy there who voted for Trump. <laughs> I hate him now. That's new, right? So you're right. These things are not teasable. You can't tease these apart entirely, but there are, you know, there is a spectrum of and a way of measuring the um, the degree to which our social lives are saturated with our partisan allegiances. The claim in the book is that this level of saturation, that is, the degree to which every activity, every space, every endeavor, every ideal, every possession is seen as a marker and an expression and an assertion of partisan identity under these conditions where social space is already segregated according to partisan allegiances. That's a condition that's unhealthy for democracy. And I'll say now, I think it's a condition that's unhealthy, particularly for progressive political politics. So, so much to say here. Um, (laughs) Good. (laughs) I think
0: I'm going to get to an argument about the last claim of um, is this particularly good or bad for progressives? And I think my answer has a bit of... a certain amount of nuance to it there. But let let, let me work forward to that. I think the first thing to talk about when we talk about... You, you put the time span of 25 years. Over the last 25 years, our partisanship politically and our partisanship just as persons towards the um, members of the other tribe has undoubtedly increased. There's just, um... The the data for that's pretty overwhelming. Yeah, robust is a a more academic word. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, though, it's important to ask why, because moral evaluation always occurs within the constraints of what's possible or of what's more possible and what's more practical. Um so i think there's two stories you can tell i'm happy to say that there are elements of truth to both of them the one story you can tell is what you might call a bottom-up approach which is we are engaging in these acts of partisan signaling we are retreating into our echo chambers both online or in just physical spaces in the world and as a result of talking less across those divides as well as social media media echo chambers um people feel more hostile towards each other, even if the actual disagreement on the issues hasn't changed, or if anything has somewhat moderated. That's a story you can tell. I think, to my mind, the more powerful story is structural, and the structural story, if you take a longer view, or if you take an international view, I think you end up with the idea that this period we had, you know, God knows the time, maybe from the 70s through to the early 90s, something like that, of comparatively benign partisan expression was the exception and not the norm. And when you locate it more fully in history and you locate it in international comparisons... Um, Certainly we have different mechanisms now, we might not have had Starbucks before, but the underlying norm of a deeply partisan society is sort of a default resting state of democracies. So I won't go through all the arguments, because you'll have heard them before, and our listeners will have heard them before, but just to sort of rattle off what they are, is between the 60s and really almost until the early 2000s, you have a fundamental realignment in American politics, where white Southerners who felt... Threatened, shall we say, by civil rights legislation and so on, start, you know, who had been solidly democratic and had had a deal with the National Democratic Party, where they would support the New Deal and so on, in allow in exchange for being able to continue a form of one-party authoritarianism within their own states, that begins to get broken apart, and starting with like Operation um, Dixie in the sixty elections, more and more overt appeals are made to them by the Republicans, but. Unlike most political realignments which take an election or two, this one drags on for a generation. And as a result, politicians on both sides kind of need to speak out both sides of their mouths. They need to say things like states' rights, which will appeal to a Southerner, but also be coded enough that they won't be off-putting to a Massachusetts, New England Republican. Everyone's familiar with that story. I think what's less familiar is that it only just ended. Like, the, the, the legislators in, like, Texas and so on, I think, only went Republican in the early 2000s, you know? Like, it was a long thing. And even as late as the 90s, Democrats were still trying to hold on to, like, some sort of Southern representation before they gave it up as a bad job. Now, conversely, on the other side, if the South went into the Republicans, minorities and any white people who are put off by racism self-sorted, self-sorted into the Democratic Party. Now, here's what I'd want to point out about that story, is that story was the result of conscious choices. The Democratic Party made a conscious choice to shift to being civil rights, and the Republican, and this was contested within the Republican Party, made a series of conscious choices to start appealing towards those voters. But I think where we are now is at a point where, for a long time, demographic identity, fundamental identity has been cross-cutting with partisan identity. You know, they were white Southern Democrats, they were liberal Northern Republicans, and that kind of just blurred the waters of our partisan expression. Now we're in a situation in which our fundamental sets of identities are locked up much more directly one-for-one correlated with their partisan expression. Now, to my mind, as long as that is true... I think a certain amount, you know, maybe you can mediate it at the edges or so on, but I think a certain amount of partisan hostility is probably inevitable. And I think a certain, the word I use, I mean, I'm British, is a parliamentary way of looking at politics, where you have two competing teams with national agendas who want to do a national vision, each appealing to a different section of the population, and you vote one in and they do their stuff, and then you vote them out if you don't like them, and that's now how we're thinking about politics. Now, my first point with that story is I'm not sure that it's reversible. So I was talking to Senator Sherrod Brown, and he was very frank for a politician, and he said, look, if you want, we all agree that partisanship is nasty, but what you're talking about is either us readmitting segregationists, which we can't do, not just because it will be morally wrong, but we can't anymore. There's no offer we can make these people that the Republicans can't beat. Right. Or us simply abandoning the votes of middle-class white women in the suburbs, which we also can't do because we'll never win an election again. We are, And the same with the Republicans. You see with the Trump impeachment thing, every time one of them comes out against him, they have to leave the party and resign, right? Yeah. I do think we're now locked into that dynamic, an absent something seismic of the equivalence of the Second World War or the Civil Rights Act to our politics, that is not changing. And so, final point, I know I talked for a long time. But that partisan place we found ourselves, that parliamentary place we found ourselves, is nothing new. And if I think about growing up in the UK, I grew up to working-class, northern, socialisty types. And people who voted Conservative were bad people. That, but that was that was nothing new to our politics. It had always been the case. We always thought less of them for it, and yet the UK. I mean, ignore the last three years of our politics. But the UK, the UK has not been a failure. I mean, again, ignore the last three years of our politics. Yeah. But the UK has not been a failure of governance, because it is a two-teams parliamentary system, we enacted some wonderful welfare state reforms, we took a more libertarian turn when there were problems with those, and then we sort of forged a consensus afterwards that that partisan alteration is just a different way of thinking about democracy as opposed to inimical to it, and it might be inevitable, it might just be the resting state outside of these huge structural realignments. That was quite a bit
1: Right. So, uh, you know, one thing I think is uh, that I would like to emphasize or punctuate is um, that the account that I give in overdoing democracy is supposed to be a story according to which democracy is not being undone in this way because of some non-democratic, anti-democratic forces infiltrating the politics and messing it up, right? That is, that if, if the argument of the book is successful, um, uh, it will have shown that democracy, even when it's running well, so even when we, we, we've, we've, we, we bracket off the last three years of the UK's his political history, even when it's running well, is always going to be vulnerable to Um, A kind of overdoing of the sort that the partisan allegiances become so central to everything we do and how we understand ourselves that we become incapable or we grow less capable and then eventually incapable of regarding our political opponents as people who are nonetheless entitled to an equal political say. Once we give that up, I think we've given up democracy and have taken on some other kind of form of government. That may have merits and demerits or whatever, but it's just not um, an expression of the democratic ideal. Um, so there's that. Now, let me just say, I'm going to agree, I'll concede, uh, the political history that you just laid out. It seems to me that that's totally correct. Um, but what we have seen just as a matter of just the sort of political, we might say the sociology of democracy um, is the intensification of certain of these um, tendencies that are not new. And you're right to point out how they're not new. We've seen an intensification of them in part because what we might think of as the sort of civic space, social spaces, where people just interact, and the sort of the the, the most obvious, and I think uh, the, the 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 example that I think listeners are probably most familiar, or will likely be most familiar with, is this sort of uh, the, the 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 data about bowling leagues. Are you familiar with the Robert Putnam stuff? Bowling alone, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So good. You know, here's just a... a, a I can a... I can
0: cite scripture as well as any yeah, religious yeah, yeah, person.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean. You know, let's, again, I'm not going to endorse his overall views about social capital and all the rest. I just want to appeal to the data because I think the data are interesting and they allow for us to say all kinds of cool stuff, right? Um, we can tell a similar story, by the way, if you want, we can get into it about uh, Southern southern churches. Um, but here's the, here's the bowling alone stuff, right? You know, this sociologist Robert Putnam discovers that, you know, sometime in the 80s and beginning of the 90s, People are still bowling almost as much as as they ever had been, but you couldn't find any bowling leagues in the country. Why? People were engaging in an activity, but were electing to not participate in that activity in a certain kind of organized context. Now, a league. Now, add to that, again, just a sort of sociological sort of fact about bowling leagues, right? Right. Bowling leagues, when they were popular, um, they're less so now, uh, less so popular and less so diverse. When they were popular were contexts where people who lived in different neighborhoods within the same city, people who worked at different kinds of jobs, people who were economically situated, sometimes quite differently within their local um, uh, districts, um, would nonetheless, you know, socialize. That had dissolved. It turns out that uh, the workplace, in general, also used to be, and again, not particular jobs within the workplace, but the the building, the workplace, uh, uh, the place where people would go to work in the United States. This also used to be a context where people who lived in different parts of the, the city or the, 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 the town or the district where the work was done with different economic circumstances, different educational backgrounds, different ethnicities, spoke different languages at home, so on and so forth. In the 80s, the workplace was far more diverse along these metrics than it is now. Now, um, the congregations, uh, especially Christian churches, congregations, again, used to be places where you know a certain denomination of Christian would all interact. But those denominations used to be far more diverse along these same kinds of metrics, ethnically, um, economically, educational background. Right? Denominations, Christian denominations, Christian congregations used to be far more diverse than they are. Now, what all this means is I want to point to uh, a trend that's not new, but it's more intense, that these venues and sites where a certain kind of social good, could be, maybe wasn't always, but could be cultivated where people got to see and interact with people who weren't just like them in political terms, but interact with them in in ways that enabled them to see other people as responsible co-workers, responsible parents, decent human beings, people doing their best to live according to their own best lights, even if you thought those best lights were pretty dim, so on and so forth. These venues have receded in American society, almost across the board, such that it's now very difficult to find a space where one can interact with others, form a positive opinion of who they are, without understanding them as either a co-partisan or an enemy partisan. That, I think, is just, it makes us bad at democracy when there are scarce, very few, shrinkingly few venues where my interactions with people, which could afford me the opportunity to form positive impressions of the kind of person they are, Um, outside of their partisan identity, outside of the expression or the knowledge of their partisan identity. um, This is becoming increasingly um, impossible or difficult to find. I just think that deteriorates our democratic capacities. Part of what we need as democratic citizens is the ability to recognize, at least in some of our political opponents, some basis for regarding them as our political equals. And if it's partisanship all the way down, we lose that capacity. And democracy devolves into what I call in the book, just a cold civil war. It's just a struggle for power now. Without, you know, politics is always going to be a struggle for power. Not a Rousseauvian, right? <laughs> I've
0: used the metaphor of First World War trench warfare for okay. our current.
1: Right. And I think that that's... Um, uh, that's a abandoning of um, that. Let's just say that abandons the democratic ideal. I take the democratic ideal to be fundamentally the ideal of the possibility of of decent self-government by social and political equals. Um, that is, and I'm a, enough of a later Rawlsian uh, to think that the the intrinsic byproduct of self-government among equals is intractable, as far as we can see, political disagreement. So I think that whatever a just democracy or a, 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 a suitably just democratic order comes to, I'm enough of a Rawlsian to think that is not an order without severe political rifts and divisions. So, uh, maybe this makes me an agonist Rawlsian. (laughs) I I think that political division- I I
0: get lost among the distinctions about various sorts of Rawlsians.
1: Well, that's that's, that's, that's (laughs) fine. And that's not a rabbit hole to go down. No. (laughs) Here or pretty much anywhere. But, um, you know, so I think that, uh, you know, a well-ordered democratic society is a society that is riven with Severe and serious and deep disagreements, but nonetheless maintains the social conditions under which those disagreements can occur among people who are capable of recognizing each other's fundamental entitlement to an equal say. When we lose that, I think we've given up on democracy. And when citizenship becomes the center of everything we do together, we Um, we erode the capacities that are required for us to maintain that civic posture.
0: Okay, so um, I I do want to sort of pick up on this idea of um, this sort of respecting others as deep down good people and as equal participants. Um, Let me just quickly say a few words about the bowling alone thesis. Um, Okay. So accepting it as true, and it's Think I last read that book in a while ago. Um, right. But just accepting it as true that there has been a decline in civic associations, I think I can say sure, and that that's a bad thing both in and of itself, and it has bad consequences. I think I'd want to encapsulate it as a, a, in in a, in a different narrative in which that is not the most fundamental part or the most fundamental cause of that narrative. So I would say something... Well, firstly, by the way, you know, philosophers back to Locke and Hobbes, civil society is a thing, right? Mm -hmm. And there are goods that come from civil society that aren't necessarily deliverable by governments. So we might say we think unions are a good thing and you can have laws that protect them, but you also need people who want to join unions and feel a sense of solidarity with them. And that is something our civil society will have to produce, and it is a judgment on our civil society that it often does not produce. That's right. Those sorts of things, right? Good. Um, now, with that said, in talking about the decline of civil society, I'd mark it to two trends within our politics, starting with, let's set the clock at the early mid-70s, something like that. Um, One is just um, a a rising inequality, and in particular a a decoupling of um, rising productivity from rising earnings, and there's a number of different vectors of that inequality. It's not just the rich grow richer, it's there's a big generational component. So, my generation millennials hold nine percent of the national wealth when boomers were our same age they held 35 percent of the national wealth and they now hold like 70 percent right it's true um so so there's a number of complicated ways which i won't go into all the details of which in which we've become radically more Unequal during that time um, in a number of intersecting ways with other variables. And I think what's also happened during that time is it's become um, a, a, a much greater extent our society has been marked by inequalities in power and status which have occurred with and interlinked with but not wholly reducible to inequality. So it's not just that more is held in the hands of the few it's that more and more people work for a big corporation or a monopoly provider or so on more and more people are in relations of domination as a republican would put it where the power relation is not just asymmetric but vertical and I think as that has happened um there's always been throughout human history a clear tendency where those that have something want to associate with those who don't less, and I would put that at the heart of the story, is we have had this widening inequality and generational inequality that I think, I don't have the data to prove this, but my suspicion is I would tell the story that first, that has contributed to the increasing partisanship of our politics. It has contributed to our inability to see each other as moral equals. It has contributed to the decline in civil society all of which have had knock-on effects that are also poisonous for yeah. our politics. But um, I don't think we would rectify these problems by having more bowling leagues, because the government can't... I mean, it could mandate that, but no-one's calling for it. Right. Um yeah. And you can't force society to be civil society, Um, but if we had a foundation of greater economic equality, it might be more able to naturally arise within that. But if you want more in economic equality in contemporary America, you have to be a political partisan. There's only
1: one side of the aisle to support there. All that seems right to me. So let me just sort of add one little uh, and I think it will be a friendly amendment to the the sort of political history. Um, you know, remember, I, I, I guess I'm uh, I'm old enough to remember that when in the '80s we got Reaganomics um, and the the trickle down theory, by which certain kinds of um, deviations from what looked like uh, acceptable egalitarian principles were given justification. Now, we can argue about whether the justification was always cynical or not. That's a different kind of question. But the official justification in the 80s from Reagan and from the Republicans at the time we were giving tra- tax breaks already to the people who were richest was a, well, was a moral justification. This was supposed to provide the economic conditions under which the people at the bottom were going to do better right? Sort of a rising tide is going to raise all the boats, and the way you rise the tide is by creating the incentives at the top. That was a moral argument. Now, it might have been deployed cynically by many people who were touting it, by all of them. Who knows? That's a different kind of argument. But at least it was a moral argument that I think, perhaps due to naivete, maybe not, a lot of people in the country accepted. Okay, this is, a, this is a theory about the levers. This is a theory about the mechanisms of the kind of economy that we have, such that the way to get the result that we want is not to invest in the people who are doing least well. It's to invest—it seems counterintuitive—it's to invest in the people who are doing best. So that— they can create the conditions under which the people who are doing less well can uh, can uh, uh, um, uh, can do better. Now, again, I'm, I tend to think that was always a cynical argument, but it was rhetorically powerful because at the time it was deployed with success, there was in the country more of a moral sense that the people who are at the bottom are not blameworthy for that. Now, what we see... As the 80s progress and as the trickle-down policies don't quite work as the people who seem to be asserting them, but is this other kind of narrative that associated um, economic disadvantage with unworthiness, lack of merit, and irresponsibility, right? Now, that's another kind of moral argument. It's the people at the bottom. It's their own damn fault that they're at the bottom. So screw them. You know, they can be productive members of society anytime they want to, but instead they're trying to be parasites and free riders and freeloaders and all the rest. So the hell with them. Now, I want to say (laughs) that that narrative, the people who are economically disadvantaged are blameworthy for their disadvantage. That narrative can be plausible only if there is a highly depleted, um, arena of the kind uh, of the highly depleted civic society, civil society. That is, when the people at the bottom are actually strangers, it's far easier for somebody to promote a particularly unflattering, demeaning conception of them to middle, in this case, economically middle America, and have it stick. And so what I would want to say is that, yes, the story of the growing economic injustice in the country has to be part of our account of how democracy is failing. But I would insist that part of the story about how those economic inequalities, the deepening injustice, has seemed to be okay with so many of us, has to do with the phenomena I'm interested in theorizing, at least in this book, which is yeah, I don't know poor people anymore. They don't live in my block. I don't see them at my church. I don't have to work with them. What are they? They're different from me. So it's far easier, far easier for me to think that there's something disreputable, something unmeritorious about them that explains their social disadvantage than it would be if I had, as I had in previous decades, had more social contact with them. So again, the partisan segregation, uh, the the segregation where we're more and more unlikely to have to actually interact with people who aren't just like us, both politically and that includes economically, I think is part of the story of how we got here. Now, it might not be, and I wouldn't, and I don't argue in the book that the way out is, you know, more bowling leagues or, you know, more of any of these things. I mean, that, I agree, that is a, that's a non-starter. You, you know, you can't go back. What I mean? This, you know, let's say, you know, probably in many, many important respects, mythical past of these, you know, idyllic civil society structures, right? Let's not forget they weren't idyllic, right? But the, the prescription in the book is, got to find things to do where you're just like you're interacting with people in pro-social ways, and it's just who they voted for is just not part of the story of the activity. Um, uh, So that it's going to be less easy for us to accept um, a depiction of what those other people are like. That paints them as either people to be demeaned or unmeritorious or are all radical extremist racists um, uh, or freeloaders or whatever. It's just like it's gonna be harder to accept the caricatures. And let's not forget the status quo in American politics, party politics, is benefiting mightily from our current social condition. This is all good news for the mainstream major parties, that we are politically segregated and more and more homogeneous within our tribes. That makes it easier for them to campaign and advertise and pitch to us. And I want to say that's good news for the status quo. And that's bad for progress, progressive politics.
0: So this is, this is a point you said at the beginning where I, I said I thought we might diverge. So here's a narrative I've been constructing in my head, which okay. is... I think there are different ways of looking at what democracy is, both as what politicians believe themselves to be doing, how voters assess them, and what voters believe themselves to be doing and why they're doing it in casting a vote. Now, very crudely, I think you could say there are at least two big conceptions. And I'm actually not in the business of saying one is better than the other. I say that they're different, but they're internally coherent. And one of the reasons our politics is so crazy right now is that it has assumptions from both of them pulling together in a way that reinforces both a status quo and chaos, quite frankly, on the political level. So one you might call um, congressional, which is what we're used to historically in America, which is much more like track and field. It's an individualistic sport in which individual voters cast ballots for individual candidates to represent their region and their interests, and they assess them, partly but not primarily as members of parties, they assess them primarily on their own individual voting record. And the question for reelection is, did I do right by my constituents? Now, in that conception of politics, legislation is the result of collaboration and compromise, and there might be a majority for one type of progressive reform, but not another. And it's just whatever happens to fill the Congress at the time, right? Um, There's an assumption that votes on the other side are gettable, that people are incentivized primarily to represent their district, Mm -hmm. Um, and that coalitions, that wrangling, and let's be honest, a certain degree of open corruption, you know, you vote for this thing and we'll build a new factory in your district. Dirty hands, yeah has always been a part of it. That is a coherent vision of politics. The other is parliamentary, which is what I grew up with in the UK, in that voters vote primarily for members of political parties. They don't vote for individuals. They don't vote for people to represent regions. They vote for national governing agendas. And they hold politicians accountable to delivering those national governing agendas agendas and as such for politicians the incentive and the expectation is excepting in very weird circumstances that you nine times out of ten vote with the party and indeed the parties have very strong mechanisms for ensuring that conformity now i think when i set up that dichotomy a lot of americans go well how do we get back it seems like we're drifting more into parliamentary how do we get back into congressional and my answer is maybe we don't And that what we have right now is a contradiction in that we are thinking about our politics, we are conceptualizing it, and our politicians as a result are responding to incentives in a directly parliamentary way. We are voting first for parties, national governing agendas, and then holding them accountable for delivering those national governing agendas. Now, the point where that breaks is our system is designed for a congressional way of operating. And what happens is we have this thing wherein the politician of either party says, elect me and our party will do these ten things. But of course they can't right. because our system isn't designed for that sort of operation. And then we get mad and we say it's because our politicians have bad character or they're corrupt or they don't care about us. Pete Buttigieg said this stupid thing where he was like, people like what Democrats say but they don't trust them because they don't get it done. Yeah, we don't get it done because we live in a system with a billion checks and balances and veto players and half of our political system is insane. That's why it doesn't get done, you know? And it seems to me like, we have now completed a number of processes that leave us with a very stark choice. We have completed the partisan realignment. We have fully detached the rich and the poor. We have destroyed our unions. We've put a big chasm between the generations. We've self-sorted into different tribes based on race and so on. And we now are faced, and like I say, it's a stark choice, where we can either try and change how we see politics and what we expect of our politicians and go back to a more congressional way, which is to say we change our political culture. Or we can change our political institutions such that tiny regional minorities can't act as blocking players. Now, both of those are difficult. I, for one, don't think it's possible to rewind the clock on our political culture. I think we have to accept a parliamentary framing. And then the solution is, we just lean into that partisanship and we work to make the contours of our system contiguous with it. Um, So just very quickly, there's a bunch of reforms you could do, like adding states to the constitution, so there's more in the Senate, um, moving to single-member districts in the House, maybe packing the Supreme Court, eliminating the filibuster, right? I can name more. All of which will have the effect of making it easier for an electoral majority to enact... A yep. series of reforms wants them in power. Now, what progressives say to me is, wouldn't that mean the Republicans can just reverse it when they come back in? I say, yeah, that's exactly the point of democratic alternation. But if you're a progressive and you believe in your ideas, you believe that they'll work better for people and right. that they'll have more sticking power. And you do see that. Like, even in the UK, where a parliamentary majority can override the Bill of Rights one day and the Magna Carta the next, right. Margaret Thatcher did not touch the NHS. Of course. You know, yeah. these really popular things stick. And yeah, there will be a certain amount of do it, undo it, do it, undo it. But that is the expectation of our politics now. People expect their politicians to deliver these governing agendas, and they blame their politicians, not the system, for the fact that they're not delivered. And so my mind is we have a really clear crossroads where our culture and our conceptualization of politics is completely incongruous with the institutions. And we can either accept current chaos or we can pick a direction on the crossroads.
1: So, yeah, I I like that analysis. And I think that um, uh, the way that you contrasted this sort of congressional versus the parliamentary thing makes really, really good sense. And I even think that you're right that... um, as a matter of the sort of the the fit between the institutions we have and our sort of like um our praxis, right? the way politics is getting done, there there is um, uh, yeah, the institutions are no longer fitting our conception of what we're doing and what we in fact are doing when we're doing politics. Now, let me just add one, I think again, something that uh, we're not co- that won't divide us because. Um, You know, the extent to which in the States we have moved in the direction of what you've just described as the parliamentary sort of conception of politics, Um, again, I think that's right. But I do think that um, the, the way in which we have come to vote now on the basis of a party rather than a particular individual or a particular candidate has been, um, uh, is now understood, right? That is that our partisan identities are in a very odd way, um, only thinly political. They're, as you said, they're tribal, right? You know, here's another sort of, fee- let me just sort of put this out there and then we, uh, let me explain what I mean. It's another feature in which, like, when we overdo democracy, and make everything a matter of our politics, we wind up with such an emaciated conception of politics that I think it's bad for progressive agendas. Um, And I think that here, um, in this shift to a more parliamentary self-understanding of our politics, partisan identity now is not really about any robust political vision vision of or any robust vision of justice or actual policy it's about it's about owning the libs it's about wearing a red hat it's about you know it's it's about these sort of very potent but from the bigger more political picture ultimately insignificant markers of um uh, uh of 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 team membership and fandom right but- and yeah, go ahead. And so so I, I don't think that it's it's parliamentary in the proper sense because we're not holding people aren't engaging in politics in a way that seeks to hold office members accountable because we can't. Not only can't we because of the institution, we can't also because in the states, voting Republican and voting Democrat is more like wearing the jersey of your favorite NFL team. It's becoming increasingly a matter of rooting for a team, regardless of any of the actual material proposals that they've put on the table. It's a matter of just affirming your identity. I I wear the hat and I drive the truck and I live in uh, in a non-urban area and I vote this way. And that's all part of who I am. And that's constructed as a matter of our social identity in a way that's quite independent of anything having to do with actual rubber meets the road policy decisions that affect the material conditions of people living in the country. But but can I make two points to that though? Is is the first, is
0: our institutions, or more precisely the mismatch of our praxis and our institutions, is sort of closing that door to us. And you can say it's not really about policy, but, but Part of the parliamentary conception is that you get a term in office. You can look at the whole term and say, did we like what they did? We're denied that. So you can't blame people for not going through a door when the door is closed to them. And indeed, I think if we could just assess Republican governance on its own terms, we could start making appeals to people who have not been served by it, but nonetheless feel part of that team. But we can't because. If politics is just this endless gridlock, it's kind of hard for the average voter to know who did what. The second point is I want to separate out two things. One is wearing the jersey and the other is owning the lips. Both sides wear the jersey. Both sides think about it as a team identification. This owning the lips phenomenon is highly asymmetric. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, you know, I live on Staten Island, as I said, which is a Trump voting district, right? Um, We have a Democratic congressman now, but... (coughs) Even he's a bit Trumpish. Um, and I talk, I go and I drink with people at the bar. I do a lot of the stuff you're recommending, actually. And one of the things I've noticed about conservatives is there's a desire to get a rise out of you that not only um, not only accompanies the political arguments, but actually replaces them. In, in many yep. scenarios. Like a lot of people will start with, Oh, I hate this, there's too many libs around here. I wanna I wanna move to like a red state. And I'm like, um Georgia's lovely at this time of year. You know, just saw my friend in Indiana. Maybe that's somewhere yep. you can consider yep. But the whole point is they expect me to to get upset by this. And indeed, part of Trump's appeal wasn't in spite of, but precisely because he upset and traumatized people from the other yep. side. It was a feature, not a bug. There's nothing like that on the liberal side.
1: Well, good. Um, so the thesis is, I don't, you know, I'm not interested in because I think that they're false. These sort of both sides, partisanship and polarization is symmetrical. Um, now, it's not, you know, there. It's not that there's nothing like this on the other side. It's just not as pronounced.
0: i mean to a a truly remarkable degree i mean try and think what would the liberal donald trump be like you can't even right it would be like we took someone from the church of like who would most upset the conservative writers like we elected a satanist or something like who would most bother them we don't behave that way
1: you know i agree um that seems right and um so happy to accept the asymmetry uh, of the phenomena, the um, the extent to which, and again, this uh, this is w- w- one thing I would add to sort of you know, sort of fill in the point about how thin the po- how thin the political really becomes when politics saturates everything. It's like yeah, when when you've got you've got a large segment of the population vehemently in support of uh, an agenda a party, a group of political actors who, demonstrably, in what they have achieved, have made things worse <laughs> from the point of view of the material interests of their most vehement supporters, but who nonetheless see the make liberals cry again, as, a, as by the way, my colleague showed me a photo uh, not too long ago of a bumper sticker we saw, he saw in Nashville. Trump 2020, make liberals cry again. Yeah, no, it's right? part of you his did. appeal. Yeah, yeah, right. Now, that, 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 that kind of messaging, uh, that the owning the libs, that the making them cry is such a potent motivator, despite everything that counts on the other side of the ledger, um, is again, I would say, yeah, these are people who... This is a phenomenon by which what counts for us as political engagement, what we think of as politics, has become so emaciated and thin and insignificant uh, alongside the respects in which we are all the more easily manipulated, because now what counts as politics is so much more directly tied to affective features of us as persons that were just much more easily manipulated in these ways. And I think, again, that's bad news for for any change in the direction of the country. But
0: I think the solution, such as it is, and as unlikely as it is, is that in the last 20 years in America, we've maybe had four or five big federal laws passed. And some of them, like, say, the war in Iraq or Afghanistan or the bailout um those are response to crises you know the only ones that have come voluntarily would be what the bush and trump tax cuts and the affordable care act right Right. i mean there's maybe something i'm missing there but it's much lower than you'd expect in a normal functioning democracy right so one argument goes what else have people got left in there so i take the hannah Adrent view that there is something intrinsically human about political expression. It's just a need that we have, apparently, right? You can say it's good good or bad, but it's just something we seem to be stuck with, right? Right. Um, And so if it's not going into making actual choices, then yeah, it goes into this stupid stuff. But then the solution is to give people actual um, choices. Now, with regards to the the Trump-owned-the-libs thing, I think the other feature of that... And this parallels with the story in which the Republicans have gone from having to sort of codedly appeal to racists to simply directly appealing to racists is if the political system can't offer people material or economic goods or even the realistic prospect of being able to offer them, it starts offering them symbolic goods. And there was this phenomenon when Trump was elected where people would just go into Starbucks... And if they didn't like the service they got, start shouting racial epithets at the the barista. And what they'd all... I don't know if this still is the case, or it's just, like, got highlighted at the time. But what they would say is, Trump's president now. And there's something so to that that you miss if you view it in purely economic terms. And I would link that all the way back to Jefferson Davis, when Lincoln says... The average white person who does not own slaves will be better off with the abolition of this institution. Jefferson Davis doesn't counter him on economics. He counters him on symbolism he says, but I can do you one better. Under my system, no matter how poor you are as a white man, you will always have someone beneath you. Yep. And you will always have someone you can abuse without them being able to retaliate. Right. And it is not irrational. It might be highly immoral. But it is not irrational that someone might opt to have that symbolic good rather than an economic one. And certainly, when we have closed the door to people being able to receive those economic goods, the, symbol, the symbolic ones came online. And that idea of you can always have someone beneath you, whether or not that's what Trump intended in some strategic way, whether or not it was an accident, whatever, that's what people thought they were getting when they elected him. That's what they felt they were restoring um, in a way that has no analogue on the other side. Um, and that that's it, you know? And I think that is it. And it's not just a matter of um, trusting each other more. It is a part of people desire those sorts of symbolic goods.
1: Sure. Um, so that all strikes me as correct. But let me, again, so um, the... The analysis in the book is not intended uh, to supplant or to replace and um, take the place of um, real democratic engagement uh, on behalf of more economic justice, more transparency in government. Right. So all of the the phenomena that go into uh, a, an apt description of the ways in which the country is doing badly at, at democracy, um, I'll take all that on board. Uh, so, you know, remember, the message is not don't overdo democracy because after all, it's all small, it's all small potatoes and there aren't real challenges and you know, chill out because it's all, it's all going to be okay. That's not the message of the book. The message of the book is that given the precise contours of, the full panoply of ways in which we're failing at democracy, Um, the tendency is going to be to fight at every moment with everything you've got for what you perceive to be justice. And if you're right about what justice is, (laughs) there's a second thought that has to be had. If you're right that justice can be achieved only by way of conditions and and, uh, activities and um, uh, projects that sustain democracy, all of that political activity has to be engaged against the backdrop of something else. Because if we don't engage it against that other backdrop, we're going to be far less likely to succeed at achieving our political ends. That's the argument of the book. So I'll take on, right, the inequality is, you know, money in politics is unacceptable inequality at the level of inequality is unacceptable the um, uh, the way in which our uh, police forces across this country have become paramilitary organizations yeah, is unacceptable the mass incarceration is unacceptable right I, I will go down the list and you know condemn as un- inconsistent with justice you know a, a whole list of what we take uh, in this country as just sort of um, uh, uh, par for the course normalcy Uh for the course normalcy in America now, is deeply troubled from the point of view of justice um, and needs to be changed. The argument of the book is that just like the person, um, you know, working on, uh, you know, becoming a concert pianist or trying to run a marathon, it's like you're not going to be as effective in your political action if that's all and everything that you ever do. You're going to, in some way, obstruct and dilute your activity unless it's engaged against the backdrop of social conditions where other goods that are not tied to your partisan identity can also be cultivated and can flourish. So let's separate out two claims, the first of
0: which we're going to agree on, the second of which maybe we'll both disagree with, but let's see. Okay. Um. The first is we require... For a litany of eclectic reasons, uh, a, a partisan victory in this country of the left over the right, and that that is morally urgent. Now, in pursuing that, it might be that as a question of strategy, you will be more effective in pursuing that if you don't pursue it to the exclusion of all other things. So you right. you, you would be a better pianist if you do things other than play the piano, say. Um, Yeah, no, I'm I'm sure that could be true on some level. There's another claim, though, which I think I would want to make, which is that civil, let's just call it civil society institutions and a sort of um, respect for persons and so on, um, can't exactly be mandated by government, but government can create the conditions where it comes about, and I don't think government will be able to create the conditions in which it comes about absent a sort of total partisan victory of the kind that i would hope for although i think it's quite unlikely
1: um so that so i i uh i agree with both of those claims okay uh in the but let me just let me tweak the second one just a little bit um So here's, here's the thought, Um, uh, you know, some months ago, not too long ago, a couple months ago, I was um, asked, uh, I was contacted by some um, journalist in Hong Kong, was asked to do an interview, which I agreed to do. Um... Uh, to my knowledge, this interview has never come out anywhere As months ago. It never appeared. It was for a magazine that was a cultural magazine, but they were going to do a um, a section in their, their issue about the protests. Now, I don't know, but I suspect that the interviewer um, contacted me because he saw the title of the book and figured that <laughs> I would be— Um, able to give a (laughs) pro-Mainland argument. Uh, And I think he was very disappointed uh, when, um, you know, I didn't. When I said, look, my book is about, you know, how to hold on to a democracy once you've got it. The issue about what's permissible to do when you're trying to build one and secure one and found one; these are different kinds of issues. So I'm on the side of the protesters. Yeah, Hong Kong should be given democratic autonomy, and that's the end of it. Um, now, one thing that did come out uh, in that discussion that I thought was very helpful, um, and I don't know what the political, um, <clears throat> I don't know what the political sort of valences of the interviewer, uh, in fact, were. But one thing that the interviewer said to me, which I thought was, was, was very, very sharp, and um, uh, uh, the interview, which I'm sad, didn't come out because we had a nice exchange about this. He said, but, but look, conditions in Hong Kong are such that the people who are most deeply impacted negatively by the protesters are not the people who are in the corridors of power in the mainland. They're ultimately the neighbors and the shopkeepers and the people who, if the protesters get what they want, are eventually going to have to reestablish functioning democratic relations with. And the extent of these protests is damaging the opportunities or damaging the possibility, I think he said, of eventually having a democracy with other Hong Kongers because the scars are going to be too deep. You've got businesses, families, property, things are being destroyed in the name of this perhaps worthy social ideal, he said, that are ultimately going to destroy the opportunity to create normal or normalized democratic relations with, you know, within Hong Kong. Now, there are all kinds of questions one can ask and different things one can think about uh, uh, that as a critical maneuver against the democracy protests uh, among Hong Kongers, um, But it is a point I think that's worth thinking about, um, especially for those of us who, in keeping with your second point, see it as very urgent that in the coming election and in elections to follow, um, the, the mode of politics represented by Trump and the current leaders of the Republican Party is soundly. Rejected. I think that's got to be right. Um, however, I think it's we just have to remember um, that the conditions under which we could, insofar as we can call any of our you know previous errors under under previous presidents, normal democracy, the countries if if we prevail, part of prevailing means retaining the conditions under which normal democratic relations can be preserved, restored, manifest, and rebuilt. And so I... W- given the urgency and given the stakes that we liberal progressives see are in play in the current election, a salt-the-earth win, because everything's at stake, policy and mode of politicking is going to leave us in a condition where our victory is going to make normal democracy moving forward unachievable, and that we're going to play an unwitting part in establishing as the new normal for our democracy uh, more of this World War One trench uh um uh, uh, warfare where it's going to be expected that um uh, there will be legal investigations. There are going to be uh, um, ongoing criminal manoeuvres against political opposition. There are going to be show trials. I'm worried that... Um, but no uh, one uh, on the left is talking about doing any of that stuff. No, 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 no. No No one on the left is talking about that. But everyone on the right is saying that that's what the left is doing. Right. But. But
0: that's because... The right requires to keep its minority coalition, and I stress minority, in a case of heightened fear, in a case of heightened racial fear, in a case of heightened religious fear. Christians yep. are going to be oppressed in this country, whatever. They're yep. coming for you, right? But like, what I want to note is how little that correlates with the reality of the case. No one is coming for them. Now... Yep. I don't know to what extent we can be blamed for the fact that these people are going to be lied to and some number of them are going to to believe it. Now look, if anyone other than Donald Trump wins in 2020, there are some tens of millions in this people in this country who are going to feel very, very threatened by that and it's just too bad. Like... Like... And I don't... I don't see the left, and I would be, in terms of institutional reform, more radical than anyone who's currently running for president in terms of doing manoeuvrings about adding states or sort of fucking with the Supreme Court. But all we're, we're just playing the game. They've been playing with us. Like, that's it. And if we're going to have this heightened, salt-the-earth Politics, I'd at least rather have it where my side wins. And I'm not advocating anything illegal. I'm not advocating anything that's even outside a loose reading of the Constitution. I'm not. And and how do I put this thought? Um Okay, let me tell you a true story. Um I, I regularly debate on Twitter with a terrible man by the name of Adrian Vermule. Um, and He is a Catholic... Well, he blocked me recently on Twitter, but anyway. He is a Catholic integralist who has been arguing publicly now for some time that atheists should not have the right to vote, stand for office, or give testimony in a legal trial. And um, his reasoning was, as such as it was, that atheists can't be trusted to uphold a legal oath. This is an influential commentator, right? And so anyway... I got into it with him online, and a bunch of people piled in. It's quite a public interaction. And what his argument actually came down to in the end is he said, liberalism is eventually going to take away my rights. That's what it really came down to for him. And I said, no, we're not. I have no desire for reciprocal hostility. I have no desire to strip you, as a conservative Catholic, of your right to vote, be elected, stand for office and his effective argument was just essentially i don't believe you
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and you know he storms off in a huff he calls me a fool and whatever and that's that but then his followers come on and they're actually much nicer than he was and they sort of say but apparently they know who i am and what i argue they say but toby you're a comprehensive liberal you believe in furthering a particular conception of the good why wouldn't you shut out people who don't believe in that conception of the good. And I said, because my perce- conception of the good entails being able to make up your own mind and entails your, your being able to hear points of view from people who disagree with you. And that's an argument that goes back to at least John Stuart Mill, right? At least, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was this bizarre thing where I had to convince people who were telling me they planned to take my rights away that I was not trying to take their rights away. And it was just this... It felt utterly surreal. And I think that just is what our politics is right now, in that there is a zero-sum conflict, but it's not a zero-sum conflict between who conquers the the country and puts the other beneath the boot. It's a zero-sum conflict between everyone gets to have free speech and vote and stand for office, and hey, maybe atheists don't right? Right. That is a zero-sum conflict, but it's not a a zero-sum conflict where both sides are equally moral or rational or reasonable or compassionate to the other. And I think that is just a microcosm of where I feel that we're at.
1: No, and I would, so let's accept that. Sounds to me right. Um, Here's where I think, though, that, um, again, some of the empirical stuff that's discussed in the book is important because I think one of the consequences of the salty earth politics all day, every day, everything is politics, and my party has got to win because the stakes are so high. One of the byproducts of that approach is that our conception of who counts as being on our side, our conception of who is an ally starts to shrink such that more and more partisan homogeneity is required if I am to count you as a political ally rather than as a liberal in name only or a Republican in name only. That is, our conception of who is deserving and capable of political cooperation starts to shrink because of this um, belief polarization phenomenon that's um, discussed in the book. That is, we become, as um, as I would call it, sort of overdue democracy, we become not merely increasingly convinced that everybody on the other side is fundamentally benighted, badly motivated, incompetent, and incapable of citizenship. The population of people who count as being on the other side starts to grow.
0: But I can speak only for myself when I say there is a sort of purity testing on the left, which I don't endorse right and certainly there's some like bernie sanders supporters who really you have to agree not all of them of course but really you have to agree with them on everything otherwise you're part of the corporate elite or whatever i've always been very resistant to that and i've angered a lot of my bernie sanders supporter following by sort of saying don't you know i don't agree with you on some stuff right where i'm coming from and again I can only speak for myself, is I am a sort of John Stuart Mill liberal at heart. I do sort of believe, because it promotes an innate human good, in a sort of fairly minimal set of basic liberal protections, or if you want to put it in a Rawlsian way, there should, I believe in quite a tight overlapping consensus. You get to vote, free speech, political participation, thats that sort of thing, right? When I talk about the fact that I recognise that I have ideological enemies. I'm just talking about accepting people at their word when they tell me what they plan to do. And that, unfortunately, isn't just the current leadership of the Republican Party. It is people like Adrian Vermeule, whose public position is that atheists shouldn't have political rights. And and that is a position I think agreed with by about half of Republican primary voters. It is people who basically want to do everything they can to stop black people voting, or those votes to have any meaningful impact. Um, It's not that like we have a liberal consensus and both sides need to play nice with it. It is, is, I think, increasingly a matter of the liberal consensus, be it your overarching consensus or my Millite version, but even that quite thin set of rights is a partisan issue. And I don't, I no longer feel the need to pretend around that fact or play nice with it.
1: Yeah, and so I, I'm i not, I wouldn't require that one plays nice with any of the, uh, uh, anything of this kind. Um, and again, the idea that we need to do, uh, the need the idea that we need to put politics in its place is not a less demanding ideal. It's a more demanding ideal. It says there's something in addition that you have to do. Right? It's not stop doing so much politics and you know do this other stuff instead it's yeah you've you've got to you've got to fulfill your duty as a citizen while also doing this other stuff so it's 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 adding to your to-do list rather than um, uh, 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 taking away from it um, now again I, I yeah you know, i'm just t- I'm
0: pushing back on the sort of not the addition bit but the sort of narrative about Hong Kong about like do we just rule the wasteland um and maybe that's just the choice we have, we either rule or we be ruled um in that wasteland,
1: yeah, and I think that if we um if that is in fact where we're at, and I think that's an empirical question, right whether yes. we are yes. in fact in world War one style trench warfare. If we are and so if we are, then democracy has already been abandoned sufficiently, and so now we are in a kind of um, uh, parademocratic um, uh, uh, civil war of some degree of heat or coldness, depending on how you see it. <clears throat> now, and and I'm willing. To, by the way, the book is not um, the book is not optimistic in this regard, right, I'm willing to say and do say in the book, it's like, if we've already, if if democratic capacities have already deteriorated to a certain point where we're just incapable of seeing the people who really are our political opponents, right, the, the people who are the real active, potent opposition as our political equals, um, and if there's good reason for us to not regard them as our political equals, Then we're no longer operating in a democracy, and the account here is really just an exercise in democratic theory. Because I think that even if the descriptive side of the book doesn't match our actual rubber meets the road condition in the United States, the analysis offered in the book does um, make visible to us in a way I don't think um, political theorists have yet done, a standing vulnerability even of well-functioning democratic orders are going to face this problem. The question of whether the United States counts as such an order is a different kind of question, and uh, I'm not entirely optimistic about, about I that. I mean, maybe we don't,
0: and one, one thing I just throw out there is, is the asymmetry of regarding people as enemies, because if by regarding as enemies you mean you dislike them, then sure, right? But if by regarding as enemies you believe that in some deep sense they oughtn't to have the right or ability to participate, or even that they oughtn't be participating. I just don't... That is highly asymmetric. So go to to the exchange I talked about. If I had total power, I would not take away the rights that they are telling me they would take away in my case. And I think... That is the reality, it's just a fairly obvious empirical fact that it's the reality, and everything the Republican Party does as a matter of reform is to disenfranchise the votes of the young, the black, and people who live in um, urban centres. It's all they do when they get in power, right? So there's no the, the common ground is we compromise over the most thin and essential liberal commitments right? That would be the common ground. And then if we can't compromise over that, the solution is we win or we lose. And that seems to me then that the task of our political theory is then how do we make sense of that reality? And I've I've outlined some ways. I think you need to let democracy start delivering democratic outcomes again. Um, but I don't... See that like coming back online, and th- I've heard this worry before about like ruling. This is the Queen of the Ashes. This is Game of Thrones, right? Anyway, um, but this idea that are we just going to rule a wasteland? And I don't know. I just think that the the negative goods of acrimony and division, um, um, and like not regarding people as your friends anymore, while very real are less than what we stand are considerably less than what we stand to lose if we do lose. And they're also less than what we stand to gain. I would sacrifice those things for us tackling global warming. I would sacrifice those things for more equality. Um, and at any event they're not attainable because for them to be attainable, they would have to be some sort of reciprocal exchange from the other side.
1: I'm quite um, strong on
0: this, by the way. Sorry.
1: No, no, no. This and um, if the if what we're characterizing here as the other side is, I'm not deni- I'm not posing this because I'm meaning to deny it. I'm posing this because I think it's an interesting empirical question that is um, difficult. Uh, I find difficult to know what the right answer is. Um, but if if it is true that what is on the other side of roughly um, Democratic Democratic Party voting, left-leaning, progressive, liberal, uh, Democratic um, partisanship. Uh, If what is on the other side of that is the monolithic, um, anti-democratic, anti-egalitarian, anti-liberal in the political philosophical sense of that term, um, group that... Uh, you've described, um, then yes, we're not in a democratic context in the first place. And I'm not saying that because I'm convinced that you're not right. Uh, I'm saying that because I think that um, uh, uh, if you are right, then— uh The book overdoing democracy really is much more of an exercise in democratic theory, not a uh, a piece of um, useful uh, political commentary. Now, I myself work hard at look find, trying to find reasons to um, uh, to hold off that conclusion about what's on the other side, because. I'm aware that the tendency to see my political opponents as monolithic extremists who have no interest in upholding basic norms that I think are central to a democratic society, that is part of the profile of the cognitive phenomenon of belief polarization that I know I'm vulnerable to. Um, Now, that gives me some reason Right, To lower my credence uh, in um, the conclusion that is not easy to resist, that what exists on the other side of my political allegiances is tyrannical, monolithic um, uh, uh, injustice. Well, I mean, let me
0: say, I am not saying every single individual Republican voter. I am talking um, a a faction within the Republican Party, which is large and represents some percentage of the population, that is politically ascendant within the Republican Party. Um, And I I, I think the word see, and there's a bit of work on epistemology that we need to wrap up soon, but like, it's not my impression, it's my recognition yeah. Of their overt statements and actions, you know.
1: Good, good, good. yeah. And so, so we're agreed there too so about the ascendant faction, right? And uh, I guess what I would say here is, um, you know, it, this this is akin to um, a, a a certain line within uh, within mil- straightforward Millian liberalism. Um, okay, I think we help populate that faction when we engage in a mode of politics that takes that ascendant faction to be representative of the the people who um, uh, 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 we uh, have opportunities to interact with who might not vote the way that we do. I think that we do better at containing that ascendant faction If, uh, in addition to our vigilant democratic activity, we also seek out or seek to construct venues and sites where um, people can cooperate in ways in which their political allegiances are just unknown to each other. Should we pause there? Sounds like, a, <laughs> sounds like a natural uh, ending point. That was really, really fantastic. Thank you so much. No, no, uh, thank
0: you. Thank you. That yeah. was... Uh, you well, might was have run t- on a little. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I, I,
1: that, was, that was awesome.
0: With a plug, um, the book is Overdoing uh, Democracy. Um, anywhere else you'd like to send our, our listeners, Twitter, webpage, anything like that?
1: So my Twitter is at Robert Talise, one word, R O B E R T. T-A-L-I-S-S-E.